Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and, and try. welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Dr. Grace Kite. A high-flying economist and seriously smart cookie, Grace has over 20 years of number-crunching experience across all the main advertising buying categories. Dead set on helping marketers make the most of their data, she's the founder of Magic Numbers, a team of jargon-free data people with people skills. Despite being magic by name, she believes that when analysis is carried out to the highest possible standards, there's no need for smoke and mirrors. Grace says, analytics doesn't lead to change if people don't make it palatable for marketing directors and CMOs to use. In our experience, analytics only leads to genuine change when it has a human face. Welcome to the show, Grace. Thank you, Giles. That was a lovely introduction. I'm really pleased to be here. Right. Seven quickfire questions, Grace. Mac or PC? PC. Logic or magic? Logic and no. Okay, logic. You make me pick. <laughs> this one's ridiculous. Mental or physical availability? Physical. Nice. ROI or CPA? ROI. Numbers or words? Numbers. These are too easy. Right. Uh, famous <laughs> Graces. Grace Kelly or Grace Jones? Grace Jones. <laughs> Last one then, your marketing room 101 pairing, double jeopardy or bidding on someone else's trademark? Bidding on someone else's trademark. <laughs> Is that worse or better? That's worse. That's the yeah. one to put in room 101. I, I um, listened to some of the some of your previous episodes and um, that it's you ask these things and they're really hard and people want to say both. And I resolved I would definitely just be decisive and say one. <laughs> well played. Even well though played. it's hard. Oh, good. Well, I'm pleased it's hard. You didn't make it sound that way. Uh, so, listen, Grace, I'm so pleased to have you with us. We always like to celebrate weird and wonderful routes that people take in their career to get to where they are now. I want to know how an economist ended up in marketing because you have a PhD in economics. You founded Magic Numbers uh, about, was that 12 years ago, I think now? Mm -hmm. But what was your first ever job? And then what was your first marketing job? My first ever job was working in a bingo hall. Nice. Yeah, I, I actually loved it. Um, my job was I'd have this little radio mic and um, whenever somebody thought they'd got a winning, like a row or a full house, I'd have to go over to them and take their, their book and read out the serial number on it so the computer could check um, <laughs> whether they actually did have a win or not. Amazing. And, did, and did, you, did, did people try and cheat the system then? No, but um, it was just sort of part of the, the, the routine of it, I guess. And, um, you know, the nice thing was you were going over to somebody who just had a, had a jolly win in their life. And it's a real, real kind of real people um, yeah. job. Yeah. The sort of people that you, you wouldn't have in an ad or you wouldn't really necessarily take photos of, but real people. And they were always lovely. 
the people that that that, were, that went to that bingo hall. I was only about fifteen, no, sixteen. Oh, okay. I, I uh, when I was at university in um, uh, west of England, I did a final year project. Uh, it was bingo related, and I spent a lot of time in bingo halls, and certainly in the centre of Bristol. I think the bingo hall was one of one of the friendliest places for a student. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so how old did you say you were, about 15 or 16? Yeah, maybe 16, yeah. And was it just by chance that, that bingo was numbers related? I hadn't, I'd never thought of that, actually. But yeah, um, no, just completely by chance. My sister had a job there and she got me got me my first job. Oh, nice. So it wasn't any conscious seeking out numbers and, and you know, their use in, in society and culture and community. When you were around that age, you would have been, I'm assuming, I don't know, studying for GCSEs or looking into further education? Yes, I would have been doing my GCSEs at that time. Um, so it was only like a Saturday job or something like that. Okay. And how, how did that lead to, to your first kind of proper job? I think it was completely unrelated to my first proper job. But um, I worked after my A-levels um, as an insurance underwriter, um, very junior, before I went to university. And actually, I really liked insurance, I was, which is a bit sad, actually, <laughs> but I quite liked insurance. I like the, the thought of risk and how do you quantify it and how do you make sure that, you know, you've got enough money in the premiums to cover the risks and, and, and what's going to happen in the future, because there's a bit of fortune telling in it. Um, and that was using data. And then obviously I went off to university and, and when I came out, I went back into insurance for a while and I started using data in a, in a more bigger picture away which was kind of marketing related there but then my first real job in marketing was I I worked in at, at Mindshare as a, as a junior econometrician and uh, that's where that's where I that's where I got my my foot in the door and, and did it feel did you enjoy that as much or more so than you did your insurance job previously do you know, the funny thing is that for me, there's, and, and you might think this is really weird, actually, but for me, there's actually quite a lot in common between the two jobs. Yeah. Um, and the reason why is, is probably, and it goes back maybe a little bit to, to that, that, that interest in real people, um, maybe in a bingo hall, or I'm one of those people that if I walk down the street and people have their curtains open, I have to have a nose in because I'm just interested <laughs> in, you know, real people and what do they do and what makes them tick and why do they do the things they do and how can you change it? And um, in, in insurance and, and in underwriting, it, it's, it's using data. And, and there the, the data is about what things are what risks are people taking and how and why and how's that changing and in marketing it's about it's what what things are people buying and how and why and how's that changing and for me the data is always real people you know and 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 it's getting getting uh, when you're analyzing it you're understanding how real people tick there's a, there's a post from bob hoffman probably a couple of years ago now where he talks about risk and that what we do as marketers is is all about making informed decisions, and he and he makes an association with placing bets, and, and and effectively says exactly what you've just said about the parallels between the insurance world and marketing world. It is all about making decisions based on the data that you have, and then trying to plan from there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. So your early work at Mindshare did that develop? Did your role change over time? Yeah, so I. Um... 
I I loved it. I'm so so happy, and and it I I just always thought it was so powerful. This this idea of being able to kind of get data together and and analyze it to see to see how the world works. And I um you know I I I just I just always thought it was really interesting, really powerful. And in all my years, I've never got bored of it. Um, because along with with econometrics and market mix, mix modeling, along with um, finding out how marketing's working, working, you have to find out what else is driving you know um your clients sales or their outcomes they care about and and that really is a a, a window into the world and how it works um and i've always found found it fascinating and never got bored of it but i did i did at one point um go off and and do my phd and it was at that point that i i got into freelancing because i just didn't want to work full time in an office in central london at that point and then after my phd i had kids so i still didn't want to work in a, an office in central london and that's when you know, magic numbers began because um, the, it's, it's been a very organic process. I started off doing freelancing and then got asked to do so much of it that I took on a, a colleague and that, that pattern has carried on and now there's 10 of us. That's incredible. And, and, and in a nutshell, if you can say it so succinctly, what is it that you typically find yourself doing for people? We um, create bespoke analysis to answer clients' questions and often it is, you know, did our advertising work? Um, which bits work best? Um, what should we do next? But also it's about how is the outside world affecting us? Um, what's happening in our category and how can we make the most of it? Amazing. And I know that I um, referenced it in your introduction that, that you are data people with the people skills to get things done. Do you think people skills are lacking in uh, econometrics? I do. Yeah, I really do. And I don't just think that as a sort of pundit going, yeah, I reckon it's this. I think it because I've got information and research on it, um, which is that, um, you know, in, remember that um, time when it was the first lockdown and it was really hot? Do you remember that? that yes. That, yeah, yeah. That, that, there was that moment where it was just really hot. Uh, and at the time, um, I commissioned some research and it was when people were just getting on, on top of having Zoom calls. So there was these Zoom calls of people slightly kind of sitting at home and being a bit kind of uh, frazzled um, about yeah. COVID, but talking about their experience of econometrics. And we got we got a, a good bunch of um, sort of seasoned CMOs and marketing directors and asked them, like, what's your experience of it? What what goes well? What, what doesn't go well? And what is it that... Um, providers of, of analytics can do to really make sure that marketing actually does become an engine for growth um, and um, you know I, I can't tell you just I listen back to the tapes and we transcribe them and we analyze it and everything but you know even within the first half hour of the first um, first uh, discussion but then all the way through all of them there was just this theme which is it's all about making sure people are willing to accept the findings and willing to implement them and if you if you don't do that and you don't have that then you know this this piece of analytics is just going to sit on the shelf yeah completely I, I find I find just any topic I'm probably going to struggle actually on this interview if I'm being totally candid or to, to stay focused because there's so many points in and around data in the context of marketing that I want to kind of get your take on or try and understand your thoughts on but from my side of things and I remember it was um uh, a colleague and or a friend of, of us both Andrew Wilshire who I spoke to about a year ago on the pod 
And he said something along the lines of statistics is the art of losing information. Essentially just saying when you have like a, any aggregate data, it often conceals more than it necessarily reveals. And in the time I've been working in marketing, the sheer volume of data that is available to people is just overwhelming. So how, how do you set about, you know, removing the, you know, the smoke and mirrors to use your line that, that just seems so apparent in the industry? Well, there's a there's a sort of couple of things there um and one of them is that i think if you do analytics work really really well and you really really understand the thing you're analyzing not just by looking at data but by talking to the people involved then actually you can come up with some findings that are really very simple and really very clear and really very easy for a non-technical but smart person to get their head around and, and know how to use and you know, that's, that's, I think, what you need to sort of strive for um, mm. in analytics, to know it so well um, that that it just becomes clear that you can see the wood for the trees. Um, and so, you know, I, th- I think that's something that, again, is a bit lacking in, in our space, because I think some people can, who are doing analytics, can try and justify their existence by going I've done this really clever really exciting really technical thing and they'll tell clients all about the technicalities of it and how smart they are and it is it's all this sort of subtext is just look at me I'm so clever um but actually that just makes clients feel stupid (laughs) and then they close down and don't listen to it and it it makes you know people particularly creative or strategists like like yourself or our our mutual friend Tom um just switch off um you know, so it's it's kind of, I think that there's this a really important job to be done to to kind of make it so that it is, you know, easy to chew on. Yeah. Oh no, totally, completely. And and we'll share. There's a brilliant article uh, you wrote for Marketing Week recently. When it comes to marketing payback, words matter just as much as numbers. Um, and that headline stood out for me. And then and you and I had a, a brief conversation on LinkedIn about your you'll want for a measure to to, to, to to be re-articulated as follow a click versus caused by a click, which I just think is absolutely outstanding. And I couldn't agree more. But it's why I asked you numbers or words on the intro, because I suppose, is that where the people skills come into it, where you the words you use to actually describe and explain the data and its significance to a business is just so important? Yeah, absolutely. I think absolutely. And um you know, uh, you you asked me to choose between the two, and and I find that really hard because I I do write and I do think words are important, and I do work really hard at the the words that I use when I'm talking to clients. Um, I actually try to go for explaining it to a mate in the pub. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, yeah. When I'm when I'm trying to explain this stuff, um, and and actually, if you if you do that short thought experiment, how would I explain it to my mate in the pub? Um, then you come out with something that actually people who can get their heads around yeah definitely but then you say that as if it's easy (laughs) and I think and I think actually that's the bit that people do find hard (laughs) I never said it was easy (laughs) this is true this is true you didn't say it was easy because to do that though but to do that and to actually break something down into language that's so simple that someone who is you know let's let's face it or or at least use my friends as an example completely (laughs) indifferent to the world of marketing to actually break it down into language that they not only understand but care to listen to is really hard I mean yeah it is I, I I guess I mean I'm I 
I, I hear this about kind of from, from various different people like, oh, I'm not that enthusiastic about data, or it's a bit of a turn off, or it's a bit boring, or but I don't see it that way. And, and, and you know, we don't, none of my colleagues at Magic Number see that way. We're all like really excited. We, we think like analytics findings are like Lego, they're something you could build with, um, yeah. and they're colorful and they're yeah. kind of you know a way to make a world that's better for yourself in the future. It's exciting. Um, and that's that's how how kind of we think about it. But um, you know, I, I'm I'm a bit always a bit sad when people go oh, boring, boring old data and boring old econometrics. I think oh, I don't want it to be like that. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, no, it's nice. I'm gl- glad you use the word color as well, actually, because you're absolutely right. It's it's more about the you know the story that it does tell. And do you do you find that that approach works when you're talking to say CFOs, or do or is there a need to make things sound? perhaps even more complicated than that or is it your chat with a mate at the pub sentiment and tone that you use um i, I really like talking to cfos it's probably more about uh, with with cfos and finance people and same with clients data scientists actually we work with a lot of e-commerce businesses and they've got statisticians and data scientists um for them it's more like oh, look at this cool analysis we did let me show you the nuts and bolts of it um because they, they quite like to see the nuts and bolts of it so it's a sort of uh, enjoyable geek out <laughs> with with the, with with their geeks. So client, we we like uh, a meeting with clients geeks. <laughs> yeah, meeting with client geeks. Yeah, love it. Um, is there anything? I've, there's a, there's a few things that I, that I, as I said earlier, I really wanted I want to dig into. But is there anything that you particularly want to dig into from your own recent findings? Because there's loads that we could talk about, and you have a knack for posting really interesting and easy to understand graphs and results on on social media oh thanks i appreciate that um yeah we talk we like a good graph you know um it's i think graphs are graphs are, are, are brilliant aren't they i'm a visual learner but yeah no I, you you tell me which one you'd like to talk about and i'll, I'll go for it ask me anything. but i want to talk about <laughs> your um recent findings on advertisers committing significant budgets um, there were some findings that you found about return on investment being generally higher when advertisers commit, when they use lots of media channels, and it, but, and yet it also shows that advertising is is risky. Is there anything from those findings that you can share and how we can understand mitigating that risk that I think is obviously one of the big stumbling blocks? Of well, look, I, th- I think that's, a, I'm glad you asked about that one because I think it's quite timely because like here we are at the beginning of September and a lot of people are thinking about their budgets for next year, aren't they? And like, how much should we spend and how will we spend it in 2023? So it's a, it's a good topical piece. And, and um, that, that piece of that finding came from our, ARC database, which stands for the ARC, stands for Advertising Research Community, and it's a gang of econometrics providers, there's six of us, that all put our results together and then work out what the what what, what it shows. We're just in the in the process of updating it um, at the moment, and there'll be a new presentation at F Week, which will be all about what happened in COVID to effectiveness. Um, but yeah, the finding is that um, Actually, we, we did a really sort of simple plot of, of you know, sort of three, four hundred um, evaluations. And we said annual budget on the X axis and on the Y axis um, return on investment. And, and you, you find that there's a hump shape. Um, so you, as you start off, um, the more you spend, um, the more return on investment you get. And partly that's because you're starting to layer in more and more different media channels 
and that means that you can reach more and more different people um and um as you go further up the hump you get to the point where actually you've now reached most of the people that are open to hearing this this message um and open to buying this thing and then and then after that the more you spend the return on investment starts to decline because now you're spending to reach people that are too hard to convert or too hard to get them to change their minds um and and what was really interesting actually is that is is the position like where is the top of that hump so there is a there is an op, a maximum in return on investment and the top of the hump was actually at quite a high media spend um probably more than most advertisers spend per year and um you know so that that was, that was the conclusion which was that actually you know you do get more bang for your buck if you really commit to it it really commit to it and it's i think it's really interesting um point that you raise as well um which for me was one of the most interesting findings it didn't always get talked about as much as you know oh spend a lot is the answer but this there's this there's a really interesting um kind of almost problem in in that data set which is that yes if you commit a lot behind a good campaign you'll get a strong return on investment but at the same time, um, if we looked at how many or what proportion or how risky it is, um, you know, a lot of the there were a lot of cases in our database where actually the return on investment was less than one. And there are a lot of cases where the return on investment is about one. So that mm. means that a lot of campaigns, you know, just about wash their face in terms of revenue and, 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 and a, a kind of not. Um, don't pay back in terms of profit um, and actually if you put 30 million quid behind one of those campaigns mm. you're throwing away a huge amount of money and so there's this there's this um, and it's something I'm thinking about a lot because I hear it from CMOs all the time and CFOs which is you know we know this thing is a, is is really good when it works and we know you've got to commit to it um, to make it work but, oh my God, there's a really high chance it won't work. So it's like being at a roulette table and knowing you've got to place a big bet rather than a small one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, brand building campaigns are, 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 are like that and, and efforts to go in for brand building are like that. And they're, they're sort of the equivalent of, you know, building a new factory or entering a new um you know, a new country. Let's try and crack America. It's that level of like take a risk, spend some money, try and do it for some for some companies. We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles Edwards, on 01189 952 007. Only recently, some pod listening companies did just that, calling for guidance on direct mail and customer research. But we're not asking you to do that. Nope. Anyway, back to the show. Yeah, it is now. Hang on. Hold on. So I suppose in the context of where we are now and the the kind of financial crisis that we are likely facing, I suppose that maybe that doesn't help anxiety levels. I'm not sure. No, well, I think um, we've been thinking about this actually this, um, this week because we're looking at the new data that's come into that that arc database i was telling you about 
Yeah. And um, w- we're thinking about this question, which is what does the experience of what's happened over the last few years throughout COVID tell us about what's about the best things to do for effectiveness in the next couple of years where there's this cost of living crisis um inflation running rampant and you know people not being able to afford their energy bills and so on um and it's and it's really interesting and and we're we're trying to pull out some interesting stuff and um one of the things that is true is that in every recession or every episode where you know, the economy goes through a a situation where consumers are are impacted. What happens is that some sectors have a different experience than others and some sectors really get hit hard and some sectors come out of the this episode or a recessionary episode stronger that that's that's because um it's almost why recessions exist actually it's kind of there because some these episodes when the economy changes and the structure of it changes and 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 different sectors or different types of, of activity does better than others and we saw that massively in covid so some sectors did really well some sectors didn't and what we're going to be looking at is you know what's the right if strategy for effectiveness in marketing if you're sailing into a storm versus the wind is still behind you you know because there are still even even with um the cost of living crisis there are some sectors that are still doing just fine um travel is one for example yeah i suppose it's the old um the old adage that it depends is always the right answer depending on the on the context i was on a having a conversation on twitter a couple of days ago uh, about the this this uh, crisis, for want of a better word, and it, it's it's important, and it's really made me very happy to see that the IPA were defending a lot of the rhetoric around cutting ad budgets. But of course, if 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 you're in survival mode and your business needs to survive, then actually, sadly, uh, for those of us in the industry, cutting your ad budget might be the right thing to do. But for customers and brands that can afford to continue to promote, you will get, relatively speaking, more bang for your buck because I suppose fewer can. Yeah, I mean, I mean that that is the definitely the line that um, you know people repeat. Um, for me, it's more complicated than that. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is that um, you know the the argument about saying um, in a recession, if other people stop spending, you'll be able to get a better deal on your spend um, and therefore you'll get excess share of voice for cheap um, you know the argue, the next step in that argument is that is that if you get ex- high excess share of voice for cheap in the middle of the recession when we're growing out of the recession y- you'll be growing faster because you've had that store of excess share of voice that you've built up in the, the dark times mm. um, and so but but what really matters is if you're in one of those um categories in 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 a that in a recessionary environment isn't going to grow out of the other side of this recession for example in covid um all of the high street clothes shops that closed you know then they're not they didn't survive that recession or uh, and there are others that that survived weren't doing well and and it's not because of the marketing it's because of structural things in the outside world about the way people the way that recession or that covid covid um period changed people's habits and shopping patterns and um you know made people buy clothes online instead um in that example um 
So the excess share of voice in the dark times is no use to you if, if your category is not going to grow out of this recession the other side. Yeah. That, that, for me, is what it depends on. Or I suppose if it doesn't, you know, return to, you know, quote unquote normal, I suppose, yeah. which, of mm. course, as you've just said, it, it might not do. Yeah, yeah no, that makes exactly. complete sense. So it, it really does depend. <laughs> no, it, yeah, no, it does. Yeah, it does. It's one of those things. It never makes for a good podcast. It depends as an answer. But I always, I always find myself saying it as an answer because, yeah. of course, it's the right one. I think it's OK if you say what it depends on. If you just go, it depends, and then that's the end, you're like, oh, that's no good. If you see what it depends on, then then it's helping, I think. That's where I get unstuck, though, Grace. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm slightly mindful of time because um, I, I, I want to make sure we get everything in. So I'm going to move to listener questions now. Okay. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us asking. So we've had a few in, and we've, we've selected two. Uh, I'm going to start with tia because it's it's it's, it might allow us to elaborate even further on on the topic we're on at the moment so tia asks in times of high inflation and economic crisis brands are often quick to slash their marketing budgets what is your advice in times like these and do you have any evidence to suggest brands don't do this so i appreciate we've just spoken on that but is there anything else on that that you might be able to add for tia i think it's really interesting actually because that this this current episode um is about inflation um and and you know i think what we were talking about then um was sort of general kind of recessions and 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 general and 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 what happened in covid in particular and um i think in in inflationary times i mean there are some sectors that do well in inflationary times so for example some fmcg brands um will be doing just fine right now because they're able to pass on the additional costs in their supply chain to the final customer you know you have to buy food and you can you can swap from one brand you can swap from brands to own brands to own label but you 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 still have to buy some food so Mm -hmm. um prices going up um in sectors where people have to buy buy that product um can actually benefit um some some sectors and um you know those those are the sectors where you know actually the, there's there's no reason why they shouldn't you know continue to to advertise and take advantage of it of cheaper share of voice if it's there and and i guess that that's that's another thing that i would highlight about the current period as well is that um as well as consumer inflation um in terms of prices of things that you and i go and buy in the shops being higher we also in a we're also in a kind of period of really very high media inflation at the moment, um, which is that the cost of buying TV's gone right up. Google and Facebook have put the prices up as well, so cost per clicks are up, um, and um, you know that 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 is making that is making a big difference as well. So this kind of idea that there will always be cheaper um, share of voice, like, isn't actually true right now because. Mm media is very expensive so share of voice is is more expensive than usual um right now so where that will go i i I don't know so i i think you know that that kind of line that quite often gets trotted out in in recessions is is plain wrong based on the data at the moment yeah yeah as you say there's so many variables aren't there to keep an eye on 
Question two. So this is from a friend of the show and Call to Action alumni, Dave Wakeman, who asks, is there any validity to a lot of the trends people were talking about that were certain to be with us due to the pandemic, like the economy being advanced 10 years in uh, online shopping, for example? Yeah, so I, th- I think, um, you know, I think things have changed because of the pandemic. You know, um, we see it in our own lives that that we've all gone to hybrid working. And um, can you hear the sirens in the background? I live in South London. (laughs) They'll always be there. (laughs) Yeah, we we actually camped out during the pandemic and we realised that throughout the whole night where we live, there's just nothing but sirens. (laughs) (laughs) We've got them over here in Reading today as well. So we'll have it in stereo soon. Yeah, um, but um, sorry, what was I saying? Um, I was just saying about, um, you know, um, things have actually changed. And I, th- I think, um, you know, in our own lives, even things like, you know, being able to do Zooms and not travel, um, those things have those things have definitely changed. And another thing that, that, that has also happened um, is that, the um the pandemic period was was an example um of something that even even though there were, you know we, nobody would ever ever wish to repeat it um it is an example of what we would need to do to stick within uh, bear with me on this to stick within um our 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 climate change um where we need to be on climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I saw some research about it the other day, which is that um, during the pandemic, global emissions of carbon dioxide went down by 7%. And it just right. so happens that 7% is the amount it needs to go down every year to to, to, to stick within, um, you know, the, 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 the two degrees or one and a half degrees more warm from here that the the scientists say is really needed to avert catastrophe so um, actually we needed to cut the amount of emissions that we did during the pandemic and then do that again every year you know cut it even further every year to to get to to the to get to to go to get to where we need to so um you know i think there are to get back to your 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 listeners question is is that there are a, a whole range of things that have gone back to normal and that's absolutely right and i'm really glad of it you know we sh- we should bring things back to normal and um the percentage of of sales that are being um in the uk at least the percentage of of shopping that's being done online has not gone back to where it was pre-pandemic but it has gone back to where we think the trend line pre-pandemic might have been now if it had carried on how right. things how we might have expected so a lot of things have gone back to normal and that is really really good but things have changed and 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 i think it's always really just worth having that that you know that climate thought in mind as well just like an example of what needs to happen yeah i did see some stunning photography and some video during the pandemic of where you know nature and wildlife had returned to certain areas i mean there was you know there was a complete takeover in some some kind of rural towns in spain i believe and wild boar moving in but it was uh yeah it was really fascinating and something quite magical about it Hmm. Wonderful. Right. The final uh, part of the interview then, Grace, is our four pertinent poses that we put to everyone. Starting with, what advice would you give to your younger self? 
I thought about this when you sent the email over and um, I thought about my younger self at, at, at that first job in Mindshare and you, you, honestly, you couldn't tell her anything. <laughs> <laughs> she, like, she totally knew it all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not actually a big advice giver. Um, I get, okay. If people ask me, I will, will give advice, but I, I wouldn't have liked to tell her she knew exactly what she was doing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's funny, isn't it? I've, it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. Is it an age thing or just, I don't know what it is. You certainly go through that phase where, you, I mean, you, you can't know what you don't know, but there, there, tends, there tends to be a peak, doesn't there? I don't know if it's a confidence thing or, a, I don't know, an early maturity thing. Wonderful. So nothing. So there's nothing you would tell her because she wouldn't listen. She wouldn't listen. She wouldn't but, listen. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Amazing. Number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm on record on this for the, I did the Marketing Week 101 and Room 101. And the thing I would put in Room 101 is absolutely being able to bid on competitors' trademarks in search. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm really furious that it exists. I think it should be illegal. Yeah, no, I agree. I totally agree. Do you care to expand on that at all? Yeah, I can do. And and, and the, the reason is, is that, um, you know, um, first of all, I don't think it really does much. Um, mm. Like, it, you know, we, we, we're evaluating it a lot of the time and um, it's mostly been using being used in a navigational way. So people really click on it instead of clicking on the organic listing. So, you know, I've put in gas podcast and the first thing that comes up is is a paid link um and then a, a couple of um you know lines further down the page is the 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 unpaid link mm. and i honestly quite frankly don't care which one i click on um and the fact that there's a paid link there isn't making me any more likely to arrive at your podcast page um and we see it in evaluation time after time that it doesn't do that much um, so it's, it's kind of a waste of money for the advertiser. But what, what annoys me more than that, because I think advertisers have got enough data and they ought to be able to, you know, um, decide for themselves what they want to spend their money on. But what annoys me more than that is the existence of this thing just forces everybody to defend themselves and buy more of it. So, um, you know, if, um, say, um, uncensored CMO decides to buy a search term that turns up next to to, to gasp podcast mm. um you know that's that that's an, a, a cynical attempt to 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 you know get traffic on the back of your brand name uh giles um i'm sure john john evans well i don't know i was about to say i can see john doing just that <laughs> <laughs> but, murky, murky morals of john evans <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know it just and and and, and that that sets up a, a um you know, it's trying to get traffic off the back of your brand name, which which feels like an unfair use of something you own. Um, and then on top of that, that means that you then always have to buy a paid ad because some, because otherwise, you know, you, you're getting further and further down the page with your organic listing. And all of it is just not doing very much, but just a, a sort of forced, um, forced, for, for spending money and sending it to Google and I, I tried to work out how much it might be recently and it, it's a lot it's it, it's enough that you know if if you could give it to the government or you could put it to use on 
um you know helping people it would make a huge difference like it's it's like a lot of a lot of council houses for example yes no i fully agree i mean i think um sadly google's probably just licking their financial lips and just enjoying the this kind of market that they've created for for their own ends really i mean i suppose that are there any instances where you could where you could see it being uh beneficial for a brand to have an ad on its own brand name in the spirit of it depends i think on your own brand name there are reasons to do it um for example you know the 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 google um crawlers might might um direct the organic listing to a a, the wrong landing page or a landing page that doesn't convert that well so in that case you might decide that you want the paid ad because you can actually really direct people that way um so for example say you're on tv and you want people to to come to the tv landing page so you, you could buy that ad um just to make sure that that was what really happened and really control the journey. So things like that, um, you know, th- there's a reason to do it. But bidding on a competitor's one, it, it just feels really, um, you know, I- immoral to me and, and then wasteful because people who are popping, you know, a competitor's name in, that's where they want to go. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm kind of now wondering whether someone like Rory Sutherland might say there's a kind of signalling value of sorts, but um, I don't know. I'm not sure if that's, uh, I'm not sure if there would be. Um, Number three is any books that you can recommend to our listeners? Yeah, so I thought about this one and um, I think um, there are some obvious marketing books, um, which I'm not going to name because I think that's quite obvious and everybody that comes on your podcast goes, you know, this good marketing book or that good marketing book. But I'm going to suggest that your listeners might want to read a novel um, by Neil Stevenson called Snow Crash. Um, And I'm going to suggest that for two reasons. First of all, this is the um, book that invented the term metaverse. And it is an image of the future in which, um, you know, um, people spend time more 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 online than they do now in a much more immersive way um and um i think it potentially is the way the world is going um i was one of the people when facebook rebranded to meta that actually thought it was a good idea because i think you know if they put money into that then then you know it's bringing to life a future that is probably going to happen um Mm. but also because snow crash is a really good book it's just it's a real page turner thriller and um, in it, the, you know, in this, this version of the future, um, the competition on um, pizza delivery has got so fierce that it's the mafia doing it in the future. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and the penalty for getting Amazing. your pizza delivered late is death. <laughs> <laughs> just, it's just an, it's an amusing wow. and funny book and, and prescient, I think, in a few ways. Yeah, amazing. Am I? Um, I suppose I shouldn't really ask for spoilers. I'm just wondering how it all ends. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> you got to read the book. I think I'm probably, yeah, yeah, you got to read the book or, or live uh, live Meta's twisted future. <laughs> amazing. I love it when books come up that haven't haven't come up um, on the show before. So that's wonderful. Snow Crash. There you go. And then number four, Grace, is we always dedicate every episode to someone, and we bestow or hospital pass that honour depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly do the honours? So, yeah, I would... Um, I mean, I, I've, I've got a, a number of, like, amazing um, 
women data people who have supported me in my career and helped me get to where I am now. Um, and I, there's two of them in particular that I, I'm struggling to choose between. Um, neither of them are famous. None of your your listeners will have heard of them. Um, but one of them is is uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna can I go for two? I was being really decisive yes, at the please, beginning, yeah. wasn't what I? Did you do? Um, no, no, that's fine. But one of them is Louise Cook, and Louise Cook um, is the lady who um, worked at DDB in the very early days of econometrics, and actually took Les Binet on as her graduate trainee. And this is in the 1980s. And um, I always have this picture of them wearing kind of luminous socks and listening to Culture Club, but I'm sure that's not what they were doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, Louise is the one that trained Les, and then later she trained me. Um, and um, without her, I would not be as good at what I do as I currently am. And I wouldn't have the confidence to to pontificate on things because I, kn- I now know that I have a kind of good good basis for that I can walk the walk and not talk the talk but it was her that trained me um so that's Louise and then more recently um a lovely lady called Sarah Hunt um who has been a mentor to me um and helped me with with a a range of of decisions um in in the way Magic Numbers is run because she used to run similar businesses um herself and now she's one of our she's our non-exec director um, and she's just a massive support and a massive help. So those two, Fantastic. two ladies of data. Yeah, two ladies of data. That's brilliant. No, they're great dedication. So this episode is very proudly dedicated to Louise Cook and Sarah Hunt. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so as a final call to action, everyone listening can head over to the listing and there'll be links to everything uh, Dr. Grace Kite related uh, we'll link to Snow Crash. We're going to link to the, well, we'll link to all of your Marketing Week articles, but I would uh, especially suggest people read the one we were referenced earlier. How else can our listeners get more Grace Kite? Um, so, you know, um, if, if if your listeners are interested in any marketing evaluation or analysis, you should come to Magic Numbers because we're really good at it and we, we do it with a lovely kind of um, kind face. Um, so, that would be number one. Um, but we we also, as you said, um, publish uh, research. We um, we we put out lovely lovely charts every month. Um, so the the call, the call to action would be to follow on follow me on LinkedIn or follow Magic Numbers um, on LinkedIn. Um, or we're both both are on Twitter as well. So all of our research comes out on both LinkedIn and Twitter and and, and we give it away for free. Um, we love it when people comment and, and, and chat about it. Um, and also the final one is to look out in future because we are going to be launching a Magic Numbers Academy whereby we, we offer training. So that, that isn't there yet, but it will be in future. Oh, wow. And is that training to individuals or, or businesses or both? Both, but individuals mainly. Perfect. Fantastic. Well, we will include all of your social links thank you. Uh, on this episode too. Dr. Grace Kite, thank you so much for joining. I've, I've, I've loved chatting. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege. Thank you. It's been a joy. Finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the podcast. 
Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or email hello at calltoaction.co. I'm off to set up an uncensored CMO Google campaign. Um, (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Yeah, hey, hey.